Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. In April of 1998, a driver noticed something on the side of Utah Highway 276 near Maidenwater Spring, Utah that didn't belong and stopped to investigate. That's when a deceased female's body was discovered inside a sleeping bag. The female had been shot to death, bound with rope and duct tape, and wrapped in a children's rug and put inside a sleeping bag. The victim was also found to be missing the tips of their fingers and thumbs and was believed to be of Hispanic or Native American descent. Unable to determine her identity, despite exhaustive efforts by authorities, she became known as Maiden Water Victim. At first, it was thought she may have been a victim of serial killer Scott Lee Kimball of Boulder, Colorado, who was responsible for at least four murders in rural Colorado and Utah between 2003 to 2004 and is thought to have killed more than 21 people. He is currently serving a 70-year prison sentence and at some point was ruled out as her killer. Not only would her identity go unsolved for the next 20 years, but the identity of her killer would go unsolved for the next 24 years. In 2018, when authorities in Utah released a post-mortem photo of the Jane Doe, an amateur internet sleuther in California suggested that the woman looked strikingly similar to Lena Azagruder Reyes Geddes, a missing woman from Youngstown, Ohio. The photos were compared, and the similarities were uncanny, even down to the mole on her ear. This hunch prompted authorities to put out new information, and then a sister of Lena's traveled from Mexico to Utah to provide her DNA. This DNA was able to help positively identify the Jane Doe as Lena Reyes Geddes. Lena was 37 when she was killed, and her body was discovered 12 days after her death. Her family took her body home in 2019 to lay her to rest. After her identity was discovered, detectives then tried to determine who her killer was. Focusing on the rope that had been found wrapped around her body, a crime scene specialist in Utah with special tools tested it for evidence. One of those tools was an MVAC, described as a wet-dry type device that is used on especially tough surfaces like rope to extract DNA. The MVAC found 117 enneagrams of DNA on the rope, and a DNA profile can be found from just one enneagram of DNA. The result consisted of two DNA profiles. At this point, four years after Lena's identity was revealed, swabs were collected by two willing family members of her cremated late husband, Edward Geddes. Geddes had initially been a suspect in her murder when he declined to report her missing for six months. 
However, Geddes was found in 2001 in Nevada of an apparent suicide using a gun. A search warrant was required, however, to retrieve DNA from Geddes' son. When the DNA samples came back, it came back to one DNA profile, Edward Geddes. But a problem was encountered when the other DNA profile was entered into CODIS. It came back to a 2011 murder in Montana, but the DNA wasn't from a killer. It was actually from the not expert that was used in both cases. The expert then submitted his own DNA, which matched the second sample taken from the rope, leaving only Edward Geddes' DNA profile, and in June 2022, it was announced that he was indeed her killer. Lena was a native of a small Mexican town and was an accomplished ballet dancer with a degree in international business. She unfortunately met Geddes in New Mexico in 1996, and the couple married months later and moved to Toledo, Ohio. The couple owned a business where they lived in Youngstown, Ohio, and he would take her life just two years later. Her family notified the police when they discovered she was missing after she was supposed to take a trip to Dallas and Laredo, Texas to visit but never arrived. Her husband only reported her missing six months after she was last seen, and when interviewed by police, he claimed he dropped her off at the Pittsburgh airport on April 8, 1998, and kissed her just before she walked into the airport. He described a sleeping bag she was going to give a loved one as a gift that he tightly rolled up with rope just before she left on her trip. Here is a clip of the interview, and more of the entire interview can be found on YouTube, and I will put the link down below. Unusual. Okay, I left oh, about 6.45, Austin Town, we went uh, down to Pittsburgh Airport. Uh, I pulled up to the check-in, uh, US Air check-in. She didn't have the tickets for but uh, Skycat, can I check something just on your word? Yeah, type of thing. So I gave him 10 bucks. I said, okay, now you take care of all our baggage and make sure she gets to where she's going. Okay. And uh, I didn't come into the airport because I had Cheekies in, in the car. And uh, we hadn't really broken Cheekies of, of keeping her in the car. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, we hadn't taught her how to stay in the car and not go pee pee. Uh, so, you know, we kissed. I was out of the car. Uh, we kissed. Uh, Skycap picked all the stuff and they went into the Pittsburgh Garden. Now, that's the last time I saw her. I have an update to a story I featured a while back. On December 18, 1996, a groundskeeper discovered an unknown woman's deceased body in a cemetery who would become known as the Christmas Tree Lady. She became known as the Christmas Tree Lady because a small 8-inch Christmas tree was found next to her body. She had two envelopes in her pocket. One contained a suicide note requesting that an autopsy not be performed, and one contained two $50 bills to cover cremation and the coroner, and both were signed Jane Doe. It was estimated that she was between 50 and 70 years old. After taking steps to hide her identity, she took her own life at the Pleasant Valley Memorial Park in Annandale, Virginia, 25 years ago. It was initially speculated that since she was found in the baby section of the cemetery, that she was possibly grieving the loss of a child buried nearby. 
An autopsy showed that she had downed a bunch of alcohol in Valium and placed a bag on her head which slowly suffocated her as she was likely unconscious. In 2000, a colored sketch of the woman was produced in hopes that it might be recognized by friends or family, but the sketch did not produce any leads that led to her identity. Recently, Othram performed advanced DNA testing funded by DNA Solves Crowdfund and a substantial donation by an anonymous donor. From there, genetic genealogist Carla Davis discovered a family member of the Jane Doe in a public genealogy website and was able to build a family tree. This person's name was provided to detectives and the relative provided a DNA sample to confirm the match. Turns out, the Christmas tree lady was actually Joyce Marilyn Meyer Somers. Joyce was originally from Davenport, Iowa and was the oldest of five siblings. She died at the age of 69, and it's believed that she likely moved to Virginia after the mid-80s. Although she had a scar on her abdomen that resembled a C-section scar, her family doesn't believe that she ever gave birth. Although never reported missing, her family did search for her and even hired a private investigator to help locate her without any success. The few remaining immediate family members, including her sister Annette, are happy to finally have some answers. It's still a sad story, but at least the Christmas tree lady now has her name back. On the afternoon of November 4, 1999, authorities responded to reports of an infant found wrapped in a towel floating near some boathouses on the Mississippi River in Lake Pepin. A boater who hadn't realized what was in the towel said the baby girl fell out when he plucked the bundle from the water. The child still had its umbilical cord attached, and a post-mortem examination wouldn't find any obvious sustained injuries. So while the coroner was unable to establish a cause of death, they did rule the manner of death a homicide. Four years later, on December 7, 2003, some teenagers stumbled upon another infant that also had its umbilical cord attached. It was a full-term baby boy on the shoreline of Methodist Campus Beach in Frontenac, Minnesota, in the lower boat harbor of the Mississippi River. This baby was found about 20 miles away from where baby Jane Doe was found in the water four years earlier. A post-mortem examination revealed the boy was most likely born alive, but a cause of death could not be determined. Just like baby Jane Doe, the manner of death was ruled a homicide. In the same county, on March 26, 2007, a female infant was discovered by Treasure Island Resort and Casino employees. The infant was either Indigenous, American, or Hispanic, and it's unclear if it was dead or alive when put in the water, but authorities stated this infant was likely not related to the other two infants. These cases became known as babies in the water, and investigators tried for years to solve the cases. They even made an appeal to the community in 2020 for financial donations in an effort to raise $10,000 to fund the cost of DNA comparisons. One couple that contributed to this funding was Jean and Don Matson, who also led their funerals and paid for their burials along with two others. In 2021, the Minnesota Crime Lab was able to determine and identify the biological father of the infant found in 1999. In 2022, they were able to identify the mother of the babies, born in 1999 and 2003. 
with the collaboration of rapid DNA, genetic genealogy, and skilled investigators, the mother was identified as Jennifer Lynn Matter of Red Wing, Minnesota. Investigators questioned the 50-year-old woman on April 25, 2022, and she initially denied ever being pregnant in 1999 and 2003. When she refused to volunteer her DNA, authorities issued a warrant for a sample on May 1, 2022. They later returned to her home and asked about her life back in 1999 when Matter claimed she was in a bad mental state and an alcoholic who was in and out of jail and had experienced chaotic life circumstances for a very long time. She then reportedly said that she never even knew she was pregnant and one day she began bleeding on her way to drop her children ages 2 and 5 off at school and daycare. She went home, gave birth in the bathroom, and then claimed that the baby was born blue and not breathing, so she freaked out. Authorities allege that due to Matter's alcoholism, she couldn't remember if one day had passed before she left in the middle of the night to put the infant in the water before walking away. Matter initially claimed she couldn't recall the 2003 birth of her son, but then spontaneously stated the location where the baby was found. She explained she was almost positive that she began going into labor on a public beach while it was dark and cold outside. She said she never looked to see if the newborn was a boy or girl, but she remembered leaving the baby on the beach before driving away. Matter later admitted that this baby was breathing fine and it may have been crying, but she couldn't remember. Matter was charged with two counts of second-degree murder, one with intent and one without intent. The first infant had been discarded before the Safe Haven Act was put into law in the year 2000, but the second baby was discarded after the act was enabled. The Safe Haven Act allows mothers or a person appointed by the mother to anonymously relinquish their unharmed newborn within seven days of birth to certain locations. Matter's next court hearing is scheduled for July 20, 2022. With two of the three newborns now identified, investigators hope to solve the case of the baby Jane Doe discovered in 2007. In 1968, Lucille Hultgren moved from Ohio with her family to the small, quiet city of Galt, California. In 1988, at the age of 79, Lucille was a widower living alone at 504 Poplar Street in Galt. She was known as the super sweet lady who offered lemonade and cookies to the children in the neighborhood. Her husband, Frank, had died the year prior, and she had lived alone in a one-bedroom home since the fall of 1985 when Frank entered a convalescent home. The couple had two adult children, Frank and Henry, and several grandchildren. She regularly attended church, so when she didn't show one Sunday, her friends became very concerned. So on May 23, 1988, two of her church friends went by Lucille's house and found the door ajar and entered the home. They were horrified by what they found in her bedroom. Lucille had been tragically sexually assaulted and murdered. The coroner determined that Lucille had died a few days before her body was found. Thankfully, DNA found under her fingernails was able to be collected and preserved. Then four years later, in 1992, a transient and registered sex offender by the name of Terry Leroy Bramble was convicted for sexual assault in San Joaquin County. 
The DNA from the case was collected and preserved. Then in May of 2022, 34 years later, and with the advances in technology, two and two were put together, and it was found that the DNA from the 1992 sexual assault matched the DNA from the 1988 murder. However, Bramble would not face justice because in 2011, he died at the age of 55 of natural causes under the Highway 99 bridge in Galt where he lived. Lucille's one surviving son, Frank, stated that he wished he could see the killer face justice and he wished his brother was still alive to see this case solved. Ricky Kevin Lubert was born March 4, 1965, to parents Emil and June Lubert. At the age of 42, Ricky lived on Highway H in Texas County, Missouri, about a mile from the town of Tyrone, and was the father of two sons that he dearly loved. He was also a member of the Tyrone Volunteer Fire Department. In November of 2007, when Ricky failed to show up for a work project, his neighbor went to check on him and would shockingly find Ricky's deceased body. It was determined that he had been shot to death about three days earlier. There were multiple bullet holes in the front window of his mobile home, and authorities believe the suspect shot into the trailer from the highway. During the investigation into the murder, Tommy Wetzel became a person of interest and would remain a person of interest for a long time. But without hard evidence that would hold up at trial, no arrests could be made. During the investigation of Wetzel, he was charged and convicted of a federal weapons violation, but he wasn't charged at the time in connection with the murder itself. In January 2022, the Texas County Sheriff's Office reopened the case with the help of Steve Spingola and Kelly Siegler from the Cold Justice Television Program. With the extra resources, new interviews, and a fresh look into the original case files and evidence, it would lead to the indictment of 63-year-old Tommy Wetzel, who was charged with first-degree murder. On June 29, 2022, nearly 15 years after the murder, Wetzel was arrested at his home in Liberal, Missouri and brought to Texas County to be held without bond. It's not publicly known at this time how the two men were acquainted and the reason for the murder. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.